Set Phasers, a highly illogical Star Trek podcast. We have made it to season two of Star Trek Discovery. Season two. Post Star Trek Day. Oh, my God. I want to do a whole episode on Star Trek Day. We really should. But I missed the whole thing. I lived it vicariously (laughs) through you. You were like, this is happening now. And I was like, I'm working. Uh, But I'm excited. I'm going to catch up. I have a long drive on Sunday. I'm going to watch. We're going to listen, not watch. (laughs) I'll be driving. But I'm going to listen to everything that went down. I'm very excited. Thank you, everyone, for not spoiling it. Everyone needs me. a friend who's going to record the audio for you. That's right. Everyone needs a friend who's like, here's every here's six hours. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to be like, oh, my God, Steph, shut up. <laughs> no, I was like, oh, that's nice. Oh, she did them she all. She did them all. Yes. Mm-hmm. In real time. Yes. Well, uh, welcome to the show. This is Set Phasers, a highly illogical Star Trek podcast. Today's star date is start at 10911.6, and we begin season two of Star Trek Discovery, and damn, are we excited. So much to cover. So there's so much to cover. I don't even know where to begin. It's just so exciting. Uh, I wrote pages and pages, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it short and sweet, I swear. It's going to be sweet. All right, let's do the rundown. It's time to run it down. Can you run it down for me? Can you run it down for me? We got so much soul. Yeah, that's right. We got soul. Okay. When we ended season one of Discovery, uh, the Enterprise was uh, the Enterprise, the Discovery. See, Jim gets so excited. When we ended season one of Discovery, the USS Discovery was on its way to Vulcan in order to pick up their new captain. Because, as you know, Captain Loker turned out to be an evil Terran from the Terran universe, and he died inside a big, uh, weird uh, uh, fungus <laughs> ball <laughs> sun underneath the big yep. Terran palace ship. Uh, doesn't matter. If you don't know, you need to go back and listen to all the previous episodes to find out what went on there. In any case, on their way, they picked up a distress signal. Turned out the distress signal was coming from the starship Enterprise. Uh which it turns out had been away for the whole war, had been on one of their five-year missions, <laughs> their continuing missions. Their five-year missions, yeah. That's right. Uh, so that was like the end. They say, that it's the Enterprise, and then the Enterprise shows up, and that was the end of season one. So season two begins with Pike, who's the captain of the Enterprise, Captain Christopher Pike. He says, uh, well, okay, let me not get ahead of myself. It begins with a voiceover by Michael, and she is talking about the story, an ancient story apparently from Earth about, a girl who put her hand in some ash and she throws it up in the air and that created all the stars in the heavens. And we're not quite sure why that's happening, but that is a story they tell. And as you know, Discovery likes to thread a long, a long tapestry. I'm sure that voiceover will come back to have some deep, deep meaning in the end. And they showed that short story on Star Trek Day. They animated it. What? 
Yeah, sorry. I can't believe you're doing this you for me right that. now. You're breaking my heart. I'm, I guess I'm going to listen to the animation. All right, so... <laughs> I didn't record it actually. Sorry, no! you're just gonna. <laughs> oh, Klingon death scream! <laughs> okay, <laughs> we begin actually with a flashback. Hit us with the flashback sound. Yes, it begins actually with Sarek and Amanda, uh, parents of Spock and uh, foster parents of Michael Burnham, saying discussing like how Michael showed up and that. Uh, she meets Amanda for the first time. She meets Spock for the first time. And uh, Amanda's really trying to get her and Spock to get along in that first meeting. And Spock kind of gets up, looks at her, and slams the door in her face. So we get sort of a, I would call it a presentiment for the relationship between Spock and Michael Burnham. Uh, but then we uh, flash back to where the, 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 uh, the discovery. I'm not going to get these ships confused, I swear. To the discovery and they find out that the Enterprise is in danger, and they experience all these failing systems, and that's when Captain Christopher Pike requests permission to come aboard. And so they transport. There's a message that Christopher Pike is showing up with uh, one officer and one science officer, and because Spock is supposedly serving on the USS Enterprise, Sarek and Michael share a look, and they also share a sort of weird hesitation. They say, I did not expect to see Spock again. And Michael says, neither did I. So there's all this, like, sort of, we're now freaked out because we know that there's obviously some sort of friction in that relationship. Uh, when they go to the transporter room, however, Christopher Pike comes in. Um, uh, Commander, I want to say her name is Nan, but I don't know if I got her first name. I'm pretty sure it's Nan because I wrote it down. Boom, Nan. And... Uh, Science officer, not Spock. Science officer Connolly. And uh, basically, Pike says, hey, uh, I have to commandeer your ship. I have to take it over under, he quotes uh, to Saru, uh, Regulation 19, Section C. And I wrote this down because it's a cute Saru moment. He says, sir, may I ask, there's only three circumstances in which you would enact Regulation 19, Section C. One, an imminent threat to the Federation. Two, the Federation citizens are in danger. Or three, no other officers of uh, equal rank or higher are there that can deal with the situation. And then he asks which one it is, and Captain Pike says, all of them. So, that's not even when the credits happen. It's crazy. So, as they're doing a walk and talk down the hallway, and Pike introduces Nan and Connolly, and they're talking, and he says, okay, there have been these seven red bursts around the galaxy. Uh, they happened simultaneously over the last 24 hours over the span of 30,000 light years. Is it a signal? Who knows what it is? Science officer Connolly says, like, we tried to scan, but it wouldn't work. Uh, couldn't really figure it out. And uh, there's a little back and forth between uh, Michael and Connolly. There's obviously a little competition between Discovery and Enterprise. Enterprise is considered the gem of the fleet. Um, but in any case, um, they get into a turbolift. And uh, there's a sweet turbolift shot, which I loved, but we don't need to talk about. Then they talk about the the signals, and uh, Enterprise was on its way to one of these seven signals that showed up uh, simultaneously when they uh, had to had like a sudden catastrophic failure of the of their ship, and so they need to commandeer the Discovery. Pike has been given uh, full sort of like reign by Starfleet command. And uh, before he turns over the ship, Saru says, hey, 
I need that DNA confirmation. Can't just give you the ship. You got to do it on the bridge, in front of the bridge crew. And Pike is a little sort of like, okay, uh, Mr. By the Book. Anyway, they go. They do the DNA verification. Tilly's a little awkward um, getting Pike to put his hand on for the scan and talks about his pinky. Mm. Oh, and compliments his nail beds, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Uh, his uh, file comes up on the screen, and he sort of introduces himself to the bridge crew, and he says, I know that your last captain was kind of a jerk. And he says explicitly, I am not Lorca. Uh, but he does say, listen, the last big energy distortion that we checked out started the Klingon War, so this is of utmost priority, and we need to figure out where these, quote, red dots are coming from. We're going to leave the Enterprise behind, and I want this bridge crew to go at full warp to the closest one that we can find. And then he does his warp thing, which apparently is hit it. Uh, <laughs> Kirk can punch it. He's got hit it. He's got hit it, because Kirk is punchier than the pike. Uh, so, uh, oh, yes. Then we have a sort of a quick, I would say, rapid flashback where Michael is remembering that Amanda used to read Alice in Wonderland. So we get the Alice in Wonderland theme once again. And and Michael is actually reading Alice in Wonderland at her quarters when she is visited by Sarek, her father, who explains, I got to bounce. Starfleet wants me to, well, Vulcan High Command wants me to work with Starfleet to figure out what's going on with these signals. And they sort of have a discussion about Spock, and they discuss, all you really get from this discussion is that they're both estranged from Spock, that Sarek had hoped that Michael would teach Spock empathy, show him more of the human side of himself, that Michael believes that Spock knows all about empathy, but still doesn't think that there is any road of communication between them, that maybe they'll never speak again. And uh, Sarek basically says, hey, focus on the problem in front of you instead of those that are behind you. That's an almost quote from memory because I did not write it down. Uh, Michael gets on the bridge and uh, they're about to drop out of warp near where this first red signal was. And before they do that, Pike wants them to do, does a, wants a bridge roll call, which I felt was just sort of a sweet, give you the big Star Trek moment of everyone saying who they are. He's like, I don't care about your rank, just give me the names. So we get the names of the entire bridge crew, which, did I write them down? Yes. Will I list them off here? I've decided not to, but I could, and I want to, And but time is at a premium, and if you find me on the street and ask me to name the Discovery bridge crew, I certainly can. Uh, we could do a bonus episode at some point if you want. Yeah, bonus sub episode where I talk about each of the bridge crew people and why I love them all so, 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 so much. You can edit that one yourself. That's right. Except in this roll call, Evan Connolly from Enterprise also sounds off because he's sort of taking over the, he's like in the, sort of in the pilot position, but I guess he's sort of like in the secondary science position on the ship. In any case, uh, they come out of warp expecting to see the whatever there is to be revealed, and they're in, boom, crazy debris field. Like asteroids flying all over the place, rocks. One gets really close to the ship. Things get knocked around. They try to move the ship closer to this asteroid, which is where the red thing was. In fact, uh, Pike says uh, memorably, I was expecting a red thing. Where is the red thing? There is no red thing. <laughs> and uh, But they go to, they see a big asteroid where the red thing would have been. They try to go towards it, and something weird happens where, like, as the ship goes towards it, they push each other away. They, like, sort of, like, uh, what's the opposite of attract? They do that. Repel. They repel each other. 
like two like parts, like two of the same poles of a magnet, uh, causing sort of a catastrophic situation in which the asteroid is now hurtling towards a pulsar and will be destroyed within ooh, six hours, no biggie. Uh, but at the same time that they discover that the asteroid will be de- be destroyed in six hours and that uh, all the stuff around them is really hard to get any sensor readings through, they are able to get some visual telemetry from the surface of the asteroid, and they find a crashed Starfleet ship. And they have to use Saru's extra super cool eyes because he can see in more, more clearly and in more, I guess, like bands of light than the rest and he's able to identify the registry on the ship the ncc 815 the hiawatha a medical frigate but there's no way to transport through the weird like radioactive uh, atmosphere and now they have like five hours until it falls into an asteroid so michael comes up with a plan in which they use these pods that were supposed to be used in one of these crazy gravimet because like the asteroid has an insane gravimetric field uh, they use these pods that were supposed to be used for something similar. They fly super fast and super quick, but they allow you to like boom, 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 jump around. Apparently something like, uh, I wrote it down, I'm going to say nine Gs for 11 minutes, and that is correct. And the party that decides to go is what? What? You're so nerdy. I love it. I, hold on, let me just straighten my tie. Nine Gs for 11 minutes. Uh, the party that goes is Michael, uh, Pike, Evan Connolly, and Nan. And I will look up the full name of, uh, Officer Nan because she's awesome, but you don't know that yet, so shut up. All right. Uh, they, they're sort of a light competition because they're kind of like, who can fly the best? And Connolly's like, I can definitely fly. And Michael's like, I know what I'm doing. Pike says, okay, if you train on these things, you lead us, Michael. So Michael takes a point. They fly into the debris. Things get really intense. They need to fly manually. Uh, and Connolly and Michael sort of get into it because Michael says you need to make your, your like anti-gravimetric field or whatever is flying the ship smaller. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. I know how to fly one of these. And she's like, no, no, you need to make it smaller and get in line. He's like, no. And then Pike is like, you need to follow her orders, Connolly. And Connolly's like, no, I know what I'm doing. And he says, listen up. And he starts literally mansplaining to Michael about who his roommate was at the academy and why he's better at figuring out these sort of equations in his head. And as he's talking, he's like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. A piece of asteroid smashes into a ship and causes it to explode. Uh, so Connolly is our first red shirt, sort of our first official red shirt. Yeah, and, he kind of uh, deserved that. Oh, big time. He was a jerk face. But... Uh, as he is destroyed, he also flies across Pike's pod, cracking and and like damaging Pike's pod. So now Pike has no control. Uh, he's sort of dead in the water, just kind of flying on inertia. Uh, his shield is cracking. He has he has to engage his helmet, but he's unable to do his eject because the ship is so screwed up. And so then it becomes a whole thing where like, okay, Burnham is gonna fly in behind Pike, and she's gonna catch him when the Discovery is able to eject from their command, but they need to figure out all the telemetry on the discovery so that when he ejects, Michael can eject, catch him, and then they can use their booster packets because they're going to be flying a super fast at this crazy gravitational rock, and they need to engage the packet just the right time so that they are not smashed to death because they're going to be falling at... I couldn't have said it better myself. Because they're going to be falling at a a critical... What do you call it? Uh, terminal velocity. In any case, there's uh, some exciting back and forth, but Oweshikun 
is how it's pronounced, Oweshikun yes, we find and that. Detmer, yes, uh, managed to figure it out. And uh, Michael catches Pike and they fall to the rock and they engage the thruster and they manage just barely, just barely not to uh, plummet to their death on like these crazy stalagmites. Uh, when they get to the planet, they decide to check out the Hiawatha and they climb down there and uh, they were kind of looking around at the destruction. But I forgot to mention there were some life signs when they were in orbit and that's why they decided they had to find out what was going on with the Hiawatha. Uh, when they're in sort of one of the main chambers, there is a something approaching, which they deem to be some sort of hostile, and uh, they all get their phasers out, and the slide approaches, and it turns out it's a drone. It's like a drone made of, like, uh, salvaged uh, Federation parts, and it flies towards them, and it splits into three, and it all three circle around, and they start saying, oh, wow, these are cool. And then the pods, the, the little weird drone speaks, uh, has a voice, and the voice says, yeah, I know, I made them. They're awesome. And then the, they're like, hey, follow me. What are you doing? Don't just stand around. And so they are guided by these uh, strange drones through, like, an emergency medical thing and into a thing and past a tripwire so they don't explode. And they find themselves in some sort of, like, a field hospital-style thing. But instead of, like, hospital beds, there are, like, mechanical pods and people are hooked up to machines and parts of them are outside of them but in a kind of weird stasis and they're connected by wires and tubes. And this is where we meet... Possibly one of my favorite Star Trek non-captain characters of all time. Commander Jet Reno, played by the indefatigable Tig Nataro. Indefat what? Indefatigable. It means tireless. She's tirelessly funny to me. Anyway, she is a... Sorry. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's different. I I twigged or I tigged. I... And you called me a nerd? Really? I think nerds are different to dad jokes. I'm all about the dad jokes. And uh, just going back for a second, Commander Nan does not have a first name. Sweet! Then I did it right. I didn't trust my own notes. I must trust myself. I must learn to trust myself. Okay, so uh, when they meet Reno, she is literally up to like her wrists in a Tellarite's brain. And she's got like a weird visor on and she's apparently been watching them through the visor, but also working on the alien. And they're like, oh, my God, how long have you been here? And she's like 10 months and 11 days. They were attacked by Klingons, crash landed. And uh, it was it's a medical frigate. So everyone who was like injured, but not so grievously that they couldn't move, was able to get out. That's right. Take is awesome. And uh, and the ones who couldn't move. Tig decided to stay. Oh, Tig, <laughs> Jet Reno decided to stay behind with, and uh, at one point, Nan says, "You're an engineer, not a surgeon." And Reno says, "Body's just a machine, and I read," which is I just loved. Uh, okay, Reno, however, did not see any big red signal. Um, but whatever, she's down to get out of there because they're like, we got the ship in orbit and we're trying to go. So let's see if we can get the transporters working. Together, Michael and Reno are able to get the transporter from the Hiawatha to work. And they also have some like uh, pattern enhancers that they're laying around the wreckage of the Hiawatha so that if the transporter room doesn't work, they can use that as a backup. But it's sort of like the, the dangerous backup. Anyway, they managed to get that all put together and, at this, and they're going to sort of like 
move all the patients down there and transport them to the Discovery. And meanwhile, the Discovery cannot put up its shields because it has to be able to accept transports, and they're in the middle of a crazy debris field. So then we get some really badass flying from Detmer, which is awesome, and they're kind of like doing evasive maneuvers and also trying to stay within transporter range. And anyway, they managed to get all the patients out of there, and then just as like... uh, like uh, basically Reno and Pike and Nan and Burnham are meant to go back. There's like a weird power thing and Burnham has to go reroute the power. And as she does, she gets like a, there's some sort of like surge and she gets thrown out of the room and the doors close and the other ones, the rest of the away team is transported up. So Michael is alone. And also things have gotten progressively worse because I guess it's been a few hours of getting close to the pulsar. The ship is basically bracing apart. Michael starts running through all the things to try and get outside. She's like, can you get my signals? She's trying to get to the repeaters. And she manages to evade a number of terrifying and uh, sort of dangerous uh, situations only to uh, be knocked out by an explosion as she gets to the sort of like the exterior of the ship. Uh, When she wakes, she finds that she has a huge piece of shrapnel in her leg. She lets out a primal scream. And then just like you would expect Michael to do, she starts trying, looks like she calms down and she's trying to figure out how to get out of there. As she does, this is a part that gets weird. She has a vision. She has a vision of like a figure backlit in like a sort of luminous blood red with, I guess it was just a tall slender figure with what appear to be like bones or wings. wings. You could call them wings. It didn't really seem like wings to me at that point. It seemed like... They looked like wings to me. They looked like wings. They didn't look like wings to me. They looked like spider arms or something. I don't know what it was. Maybe I watched too many cartoons as a kid. <laughs> Yeah, but it was the blur, so you saw things that were the actual linny things. The membranes? Yeah, I guess so. So you were seeing, like, the the bones inside of the membrane, so to speak. I mean, that could have been the case. I don't know. I was confused. And so was Michael. And uh, just as she's, like, starting to figure out what's going on, Pike shows up. He, like, takes the place of this backlit red uh, bewinged creature. And the creature is dispelled. Pike grabs her. It says two to transport. Oh, no, I forgot to mention the whole thing with Tilly. So there was this B plot line where Tilly is like, hey, if you can bring back a piece of this asteroid because uh, the spores are acting up like this the first time they've ever acted up like this since, like, the tardigrade was there. And at the same time, Lieutenant Stamets has told Tilly that, hey, look, I think I had my last ride. I miss Hugh. And I was offered a permanent position teaching on Vulcan, and I'm going to accept it. And my transfers have already been approved by Starfleet. And so Tilly is trying to figure out a... She's just trying to figure things out. Tilly's just being Tilly. She's being the best. But she's like, hey, bring me back a sample of this rock. Michael, in that last moment, remembers this critical thing from Tilly. She grabs a piece of the asteroid, a sample, but it does not get transported. It just gets dropped there on the rock. Uh, Confusing science. So, yeah, it was weird. Maybe it was too dense. Twas it, or was it that uh, it's it's well <laughs> matter? Tilly rushes. Yes, exactly. It's dark matter, apparently. Well, when they when they 
when Tilly finds Michael in her hospital bed when she should be resting, but is instead like running rapid calculations to see how long they have to get a sample, they discuss like, oh, okay, it didn't get picked up by the transporter. Why would that have happened? Because it's not like normal matters. Therefore, it's dark matter, which means everyone freak out. And they're trying to figure out how they can get a piece of this asteroid, which is now breaking apart and is all around them. And they only have 67 minutes before it falls all the way into the pulsar. And so Tilly runs away. She uh, is like trying to, she gets like a, I forget what she calls it, a gravity simulator. I wrote it down. uh, Stamets sees her in a rush to do all these things. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? And even though he's sort of like moping around, he's suddenly interested. And Tilly's able to put all these things together. She puts a gravity simulator in the middle of one of the like docking bays. They turn the ship around. They, uh, they put full shields to the aft, actually 110% shields to the aft, which means they could overload at any minute. They pump the brakes on the ship, and then one of the asteroids comes into the docking bay and is, boom, attracted to the gravitational shield, and uh, they get the big thing of, of, of asteroid dark matter. And uh, Tilly exclaims, this is the power of math, people. Yeah. Which also... Cute. I loved, and then she and Sam have a high five. Uh, towards the end, Michael greets Pike in the ready room. And uh, even though Pike's mission is sort of over, so that last whole big maneuver to get the asteroid piece, um, Pike had surrendered the chair back to Saru. Uh, Pike is like, I'm going to stay on because the Enterprise is too damaged to be fixed. So I need to stay on the Discovery. And Saru and Pike are going to do like sort of like a co-captaincy kind of thing. And um, Disco will be on the mission of figuring out what's going on with the rest of these seven signals. Uh, but they're sort of uncomfortable in Lorca's ready room because there's no chairs and the table is high. And I did note this, which I don't think I remembered from the originally watching this, is that uh, Pike, he finds like one of the fortunes that was left there by Lorca. Yes. I didn't notice that the first time around either. Yeah, I think I kind of was like, whatever. I was more into what was going on with the signals. Anyway, the fortune reads, uh, not every cage is a prison, not every loss eternal. Bum, bum, bum. I guess I should have, I'll say bum, 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 bum. When Michael is talking to Pike outside of the room, she says she might be the reason that like, um, well, she explains the reason that she and Spock is not talking is that they're estranged. And but she still thinks she should go over to the Enterprise while they're there in order to speak to him. And that's when Pike uh, kind of lets her in on the fact that Spock is not on the Enterprise, that he had taken leave because he had encountered some sort of mysteries that he needed to solve. And they were the whole crew was sort of affected by the fact that their five year mission had prevented them from being part of the war. But Michael says that, like, listen, the Federation wanted the Enterprise out there and only to return as a last resort. And uh, they have a discussion about Spock and how great he is. And uh, Michael still wants to go over to the Enterprise to, like, see Spock's stuff. And uh, Pike is like, great, go on over, see if you can find whatever you're looking for. And he gives her a few awesome words, which I'll use in the quotes later. Michael goes to the Enterprise. She goes into Spock's room. She looks around at some stuff. And then she listens to the most recent, the the latest of Spock's personal logs. And he says that uh, when he was young, 
in that flashback that we saw at the beginning when he was drawing. He used to draw in order to conquer these nightmares that he would have over and over again. It was something that his mother, Amanda, encouraged him to do. And now he's an adult, but the nightmares have returned. However, he feels that he knows the reason for this, and he's encoded it in this audio file. And so Michael starts pulling images. There's like a holographic uh, sort of like component to this audio file. And it turns out to be this huge sort of like interstellar sort of quasi map with uh, all these terrains and a bunch of red signals. And that is the end, my friends, of episode one of season two of Star Trek Discovery, Brother. (laughs) You didn't see it. Good timing. I threw them, and they're so heavy that they just landed all together. Hold on, let me... There was not enough sound effects for that. Yeah! Did you see that? All right. Anyway, I tried. Now, Aki, I'm very excited for your new mug. I'm sort of excited, too. I, you you uh, surprised me with this, uh, a mug of some sort, which I guess we're going to do a big reveal. Is it going to show up before next Friday? Um, I'm not entirely sure. It might. I think it's been shipped, so we'll see. But they did say, they estimated the 21st. I imagine it'll be before then. So we have some new set phasers mugs. If anyone wants to order one, I would be delighted to help you out with that. And I designed them myself. Yeah. Well, Steph, you designed everything. You designed everything about this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fine, that's true. But I'm still still impressed with my design skills because it's not I too, and I cannot wait to be drinking out of one of your custom-made set phasers hot beverage mugs so well, it won't have your face on it which is what one of the, <laughs> the conditions you set for me <laughs> i only said that i would feel weird about drinking out of my own face but we you know, listen we can discuss this some other time i'm gonna drink Whenever out of our faces you can drink out of our you can drink out of our faces so yeah. that's fine <laughs> wait <laughs> does that mean you got a mug with the faces on it yeah you said you didn't want one with the faces. I don't. So I, got the faces. I don't. No, it's great. It's good that we have different mugs so we can show off all of our cool merch. Exactly. Some of it has faces on it, and some of it has phasers on it. Hey! hey. Oh, you're back in with the dad jokes. All right. Okay. <laughs> so while the iron's hot, let's talk about episode two of season two of Star Trek Discovery called New Eden. And I feel it's worth mentioning that this episode was directed by our friend and your friend. Jonathan Frakes, Uh, good old Frakesy himself, number one. Uh, Okay, well, this begins with the Spock voiceover, which is just a reiteration of what his personal log said, because Michael is showing the logs to the person I almost just called Anson Mountain, that is the actor's name, to Captain Pike. And uh, yes, (laughs) I know, I'm on it. Uh, And they look at uh, sort of the visual imagery with, the signals that Spock had drawn and they look at the seven red signals that they saw, you know, that started this whole journey and the two things are almost identical. However, Spock had drawn these two months before the signals even showed up. So it's a little creepy and Michael thinks, Hey, we need to speak to Spock um, because whatever he knows could be critical in our understanding of what these, these red symbol uh, signals are. Uh, And that's when Pike says, okay, so when I said Spock was on leave, I know he's on leave. He went to a psychiatric unit on Starbase 5 voluntarily. And Michael's like, what? Why didn't you tell us? And he's like, because uh, he went voluntarily and he decided he did not want anyone to know. 
And Pike says, like, you could try to reach out to him. And Michael's like, I don't think he responds super well to that. And he's like, listen, family's hard. Pike mentions at this point, which becomes relevant in this uh, episode, that he grew up and his father was a science teacher, but also an interfaith, interfaith a theologist basically like not a pastor but like a yeah studied interfaith uh stuff and so it was a complicated and uh and argumentative household but family is important uh and he says hey so you tell me anything that you need to tell me and then michael has sort of like a quick flashback of the weird red uh winged creature uh and she tries to tell pike but then she's like hey when we were down on that planet I never thanked you for getting me. Okay, I got to go. Bye-bye. And then they get called to the bridge because another signal has appeared. But it's appeared so far away that they can't get any telemetry on where it is exactly. And they try to figure out how to do it. And then Michael and Tilly come up with this plan to, like, go to warp super fast, move super quickly towards it, and then come out of warp and then aim their telemetry at it. And they can figure out, they can pinpoint where it is. And so they do that. And they find out that this signal is five at 51,400 light years away. It is in the beta quadrant. It is uh it would take um it would take years upon years upon years for the ship to get there at maximum warp. Well, it's, it's a good thing that Discovery's got the spore drive, baby, because they go like, "Hey, we can get there with the spore drive." And they explain the whole spore drive thing and how Stamets had to genetically alter himself and, and then, but it lets you get anywhere instantly as long as you whatever. And so Tilly's super excited and she and Stamets are in the lab and they're getting ready for reusing the spore drive for the first time. Uh, But Stamets is a little hesitant because he says he saw Hugh last time he was in there, which is true from uh, some of the latter episodes of season one. Uh, Hugh, who is his dead partner, who was formerly uh, Dr. Culber, uh, after Hugh died. And he's worried that if he runs into Hugh there, it's never really stated what his worry is, but I think what he's saying is that Hugh is on the other side of what living is and that mm. if Stamus were to run into Hugh there, he might feel like he'd want to stay. He'd never want to come back out. Yeah, there was something he said, I think, as he was about to go into the, what do we call it, the spore spa? I call it the, yeah, spore shower, whatever you want. Spore room. Spore spa works, the spore room. The spore, spore room. room. And he was mm. saying to Tilly that, that's how they know that life is eternal because that's what it is for spores. So I think he's starting to wonder where life ends. It is an existential, yes, mm. it's like an existential Ourobora. I don't know how you pronounce that word. You know the snake that's eating itself? Are there two S's in it? Ouroboros? Ouroboros? Ourobora? You don't pronounce the S's at all? These are the things that keep me up at night. Okay. Anyway, Stamets is worried about this existential situation, and so he's sort of uh, hesitant to go back into the mycelial network, but he will do it uh, because he must, even though uh, he could be on Vulcan uh, teaching young Vulcans about the mycelial network. And uh, on the bridge, uh, they're getting ready for Black Alert, which does get uh, called here, and uh, Saru asks... Uh, Pike, if there he has any questions about how the spore drive works, and uh, Pike has a wonderful quote. He responds, and I wrote this down because it's great. If you're telling me that this ship can skip across the universe on a highway made of mushrooms, I kind of have to go on faith. <laughs> and I think that uh, pretty much sums up how great. Uh, anyway, we can talk about this at the end. But Anson Mount's Pike is is pretty fantastic. They jump. 
and they get to where they need to be successfully. Of course, once again, the red signal is no longer there. Uh, Stamets storms out at the end of the jump. He does not talk to Tilly, and we don't really get an understanding of what's going on with him mentally there. Uh, they detect human life signs on the planet that is below them, but they detect no warp signatures. In fact, they don't even detect uh, electricity. However, this place is so far away that there's no way the people could be there. They also find out that the that the broadcast, they, they hear a broadcast and they're listening to it, and it's, it's a distress signal. It's like people mm-hmm. being attacked. But when they look at the planet, it looks like a totally bucolic and rustic civilization, totally pre-industrial. Yep. And they realize that actually this this uh, distress signal has been on a loop for 200 years. 200 years would mean that this uh, two, oh, excuse me. This distress signal has been on a loop for 200 years. Ah, Thank you for reminding me. I can't believe I blew right past that. Uh, That would mean that this, it has been on a loop since before warp was invented. How is that possible, bro? Even at warp, it would have taken the enter- the discovery a billion years, not a billion years, but I'm exaggerating, a long time to get out there. So how could these people have gotten out there to be in place for 200 years? It's a head scratcher. Before warp is it's a head scratcher. It's another Ourobora. This place is full of Ourobora. Do you stop saying Ouroboras? I don't know what that is. I can't. They're Ouroboras. Sounds like Borobora. Sounds like the tail. island. That's all I can reference. Go to the island of Ourobora. <laughs> okay. Uh, that is where, bam, we get the credits. Also, it's worth mentioning that the credit sequence is almost identical to season mm-hmm. one, but there are some critical differences. Anyway, look out for those. Uh, so what they find out is that this settlement must have arrived around the exact same time that World War III would have broken out on Earth, but there are no ships. There is no electricity down there. Um, but... Uh, Pike believes there must be some intelligence behind these red signals. He thinks there's a reason they were called to be here. Michael is a little less uh, keen to jump on this idea that there's some sort of uh, design behind this, some sort of machination or mind that is directing them that these signals are actually messages, right? It's my favorite word. You said machination. 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 In order to dream, you must use your imagination. Uh, Okay. All right, back on track, back on track, Vermeus. We all can have fun. Uh, well, okay, so they need to go down there and figure out what is going on, but they need to do it undercover. They need to follow General Order 1 because this is basically a pre-warp species. And so Pike is like, I'm going. Michael, you're going. Who else would be good to accompany this away team? And we're saying yes. General Order 1 and not the Prime Directive. They are saying they are saying General Order 1 and not the Prime Directive. That is uh, correct. Uh I wrote it down many times, and I had to write it down because otherwise I will just lapse into calling it the Prime Directive. Mm. But um, Just a key distinction. A key distinction, just to let you know what time period this all this stuff is happening in. Uh, when asked who else should go with them, that's when Michael says we should go with Oweshikun because she grew up apparently in a like Luddite conclave on Earth. Uh, I don't know if people know what Luddites are, but they're from like... Uh, 80... 75 years ago here on earth a true historical movement that was anti sort of like technological pro- uh, progress because now it's used in a derogatory term oh you're such a luddite it is really such a luddite which um you know it was a deliberate thing for the luddites in any case 
so the three of them decide they're going to go down. At the same time, Tilly is by herself working on the asteroid in the bay. And she's figuring out how to get like a little sliver of the asteroid off of the asteroid so that she can look at it more closely. Uh, the asteroid is so massive and so dense that uh, a little piece sort of slips by her and lands on one of the table. And I mean, the piece is like about the size of like a potato chip, crushes a metal tray. Uh, so we get a sense of just how dangerously uh, dense and massive this, uh, this asteroid must be, this dark matter. Um, she does manage to get one piece into her little like container thing, and she says to it, oh, hey there, beauty. And then there's a big energy surge, and she's thrown like 20 feet back and 10 feet up and hits a wall, and her nose is bleeding, and she's passed out. Her ears are bleeding. Yeah, blood coming out of her ears. She is, uh, uh, as they say, jacked up. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Tyke, uh, Tyke, Pike, uh, Burnham, and Oweshikan have transported down to the settlement, and... They uh, show up right outside. There's a big white church in the middle of the settlement. So they show up outside of the white church. It's like evening, I guess. And they decide to go in and kind of poke around. Um, this is where we get, I think, one of our, our first, certainly our first set phasers of season two. Yes. Because Pike says set I got phasers. so excited by that. To stun. It was so delightful. <laughs> I wrote set phasers, ex exclamation point. Uh, and they get into the church and they're looking around uh, Oweshikan says the signal is actually coming from below them so she goes to see if there's some way to get to a basement uh, the church is filled with stained glass windows and there's like a big bible like book but the book is sort of like a cobbling together of, of many of the earth's religions yeah uh, it just seems to be a scrapbook yeah it's like a it's scrapbooked the book itself looks like they cut out verses mm. from one thing and verses from another thing and taped it all together and uh, there, Michael's like, I'll just scan the whole big book, and it's enormous. It looks it's like the size of a Bible. And then Pike's like, or we could just look at the stained glass windows. That's what they're for. It's for people who were illiterate who wanted to know the stories of church. And as they're looking at the windows, they see all these figures. And in the window, they see a figure. Well, Michael sees a figure because he hasn't told Pike about it. That reminds her of the bewinged red uh, lighted thing that she saw uh, down on the uh, asteroid. Are we not going to call it uh, okay. by its name yet? It has not been no. named as yet. Bewinged. Uh, the bewinged thing. Bewinged creature. The red bewinged creature. Just be glad I didn't say Ouroboros. Thank God. <laughs> knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> All right. So <laughs> uh, they are interrupted by a man whose name we later learn is Jacob. And he's sort of like, why aren't you guys in the field? It's harvest time. And they're like, oh, we're not from around here. And he's like, oh, are you new to uh, um, New Eden? And uh, they're like, yeah, 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 we just showed up. And he's like, oh, okay, the All-Mother will want to see you. Smash cut. The team is welcome to the, the town slash settlement of New Eden with a ritual, which explains which sort of like explains the origins of how the settlement came to be apparently in the middle of world war three on earth, uh, soldiers who were under attack and, and outnumbered and a bunch of civilians took shelter in a church and they could hear the, the planes above dropping nuclear bombs. And they were, they were looking for shelter. And just as they thought they were going to die, a, an angel showed up, a, a, an, an angel appeared to them surrounded by pillars of fire, uh, which is very similar to Michael's vision that she had on the planet. Hold on. Very similar to Michael's vision that she had on the planet. 
and delivered the church to this new planet, which they call Terralesium. <clears throat> Terralesium. Terralesium. Terrarium. Terrarium. Uh, Terralesium. And that's where they established New Eden, which is so apparently this church was sort of the only thing that was carried from old earth and everything else has been built. Have we figured out how it got there yet? Well, only that the angel transported them, brought Ooh. them, all who were in the church, civilians and soldiers alike, brought them here to Terralesium. And... Um, uh, Michael sort of asks, you know, scientifically logical questions like, haven't you ever wondered exactly how you were brought here or what that would mean? Or do you have any technical? And they're sort of like, oh, we only have these old relics and we don't have any way to power them. It's the people that came with us from Earth. But they sort of assume Earth destroyed itself in World War Three, And so they're glad to be in New Eden, which they, they view as sort of an idyllic Eden, and for lack of a better word. And the All-Mother says they need no explanations. They have their faith. However, uh, Jacob does seem a little mm, curiosity piqued by the notion of like what quite the answer is. But in any case, uh, Pike sort of goes like, well, it's a late night. We're going to head out at first light tomorrow. Do you mind if we uh, <laughs> sleep in your church for the night? And the all-mother's like, oh, yeah, sure, totally, by all means. So that's set up. Meanwhile, Tilly is in sickbay, and uh, she is woken by crew person May, uh, and they're having like a brief conversation and then Saru enters with the doctor and he's all bluster and scold and he's like, how dare you work on an asteroid all by yourself, you fool. You could have hurt yourself. And she explains, I was doing it in order to save uh, Stamets because he doesn't want to go in there. And I thought this would be a way to make a non-biological uh, navigator for the system. And Saru's like, I understand. I understand. You're the youngest person ever to be in the cadet training program, the, 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 not the, the command training program. And I, as the first uh, Kelpian in Starfleet, and now indeed the only one, I too felt the burden to prove that I was worthy. And that's why I learned, I think he said 90 Federation languages? Yes, he did say so. Yes, so something like that. Yeah, it's absurd. But Saru is pretty brilliant. Uh, anyway, he says, like, listen, before we can care for others, we must care for ourselves. But then he is called away promptly back to the bridge uh, because, of course, something has gone terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. While the away team is still down on the planet, uh, there is deadly, truly deadly radiation coming from one of the outer rings of the planet. It is uh, starting to, uh, like, ionize in the upper atmosphere, and the radiation will, when it reaches the lower atmosphere, cause an extinction-level event, killing everything and everyone on the planet. And Saru who's sort of in between Michael and Pike about whether the signals have meaning or relate to some sort of destiny or sending a message says like, maybe this is why disco was brought here. They must save not only their away team, but all the denizens of the planet. So they need to work on a plan. Meanwhile, the away team's plan is like, you know, Pike is sort of like, okay, we got the story. There's nothing really to find here. So I think we should just turn off the beacon and transport out of here and say goodbye. Michael disagrees and thinks that they should be welcomed back into modern human society. Pike says, listen, General Order 1 is still in effect here. These people are pre-warp, and we don't want to, like, completely destroy their society. Uh, and he orders Michael and Oweshikan to follow General Order 1 uh, in that instance. But 
As they're doing that, Oweshikun, who had gone to check on the beacon, says, hey, someone rigged this distress call to keep going. And that's when Jacob shows up again. Dun-dun-dun, Jacob shows up. And he says, yes, and you answered. He said he saw their devices, and he knew someone would come, and he was always curious, and he knew there had to be something out there. And his, he comes from a, a family that was made up of scientists, and they knew there had to be more than this idyllic, there must be more than this provincial life, uh, to quote <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, apparently. Uh, Why, because oh, I do boy. Mrs. Potts, you have to do something else? I don't know. Sometimes we were talking about this. Sometimes you just think in song. We do think in song. And two musicians. <laughs> what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Uh, Pike still like tries to keep too. up. What? What? Yeah. Don't stop. 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 Okay. Are we in Houston. <laughs> I'm not answering it. We're not gonna think about what song it is because this is not a musical podcast. But it could be. Pike tries to maintain <laughs> the ruse. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. These are uh, relics from uh, where we came from up north. And Jacob's like, no, man, I'm not a fool, man. I know who you are. I, I feel like you guys are from uh, the the that 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 race of humans that must have taken to the stars. You must fly about in like something like starships. And he's like, you must give us your technology. You must show us the, what is true, what is real. I can no longer stand the ignorance. Uh, you know, I feel like it's a there's a lie to their lives there. But they try to leave, and when they do, Jacob throws like a light, like a stun grenade, a big stun grenade, and he stuns all three of them. And when they wake up, they are locked in the basement, and their equipment has been stolen. Their phases, their tricorders, et cetera, et cetera. James Mason here. Absent Jack. Uh, Jack is back, ladies and gentlemen. Oweshikun is able to pick the lock on the trap door to the basement and able to get out. But before they get out, Pike says, remember, General Order 1 still applies, and that's an order. Do you understand? They both say, okay, General Order 1, even though our equipment has been stolen and it's it's being who knows what's happening right now. Meanwhile, Tilly is in sickbay berating herself because she can't figure out what's going on with the asteroids. She can't figure out how to save the people from the radiation. She's like literally uh, berating herself out loud. This is when uh, May returns, and she says, hey, no, Tilly, I think you can figure this out. You're super brilliant. Uh, and together they work out a plan to use the supermassive uh, asteroid to, to pull the gravitational, the radiation debris away from the planet. And, and it's a very clever plan. Uh, it, clever and, might I add, daring. Uh, so they're like, oh, it's so great. May does say something weird like, your mind is so much fun. And then um, um, Tilly runs onto the bridge in a sort of like a mirror of Michael's running to the bridge that time when she had all the crazy radiation in episode one uh, in her hospital clothes. And yes. uh, Saru's like, hey, what did I tell you? And she's like, no, just listen listen to me. Let me explain my, my plan. And they explain the plan, and they realize that in order to do it, they have to like they have to move the ship in such a way that the asteroid will slip out of the docking bay, which means they'll have to do a quote donut maneuver, which uh, Tilly and Detmer are excited about, but they can't do it because they can't move into the weird radiation part of the debris. But they could do it if they used the spore drive. And Stamets says, "Yeah, you can do it if you use the spore drive." And Stamets somehow now is like sort of into this idea. So Stamets goes and he tells the bridge crew to prep for a jump. On the planet, Pike confronts Jacob 
who is showing all his stuff to the all mother and other members of the community. And he says like, what happened to thou shalt not steal? And there's this whole back and forth. And Pike says, just give us our stuff and we'll go. Cause he doesn't, obviously he's trying to maintain general order one. Uh, while they're having this discussion, some young girl who's playing with one of the phasers, uh, clicks it and presses it to like overload and pike seeing this runs towards her grabs the phaser jumps on top of it lands on the ground it explodes underneath him in the earth and he is mortally wounded uh and jacob shows up and he says heal them heal him with your 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 tools you know i know that you can and michael and oweshikan are sort of like mm, we could and then they're like okay we must get him to the sanctuary and pray for another revelation and uh, everyone agrees to that. In the meantime, oh, deliverance, not revelation, excuse me. On the bridge, they do a black alert. Detmer does the sweet, sweet, sweet uh, donut maneuver. The asteroid comes out of the bay. It pulls the radiation away from the planet. The planet is saved. Also, this radiation was preventing them from being able to transport the team out, so it would have been a disaster. I don't think they could even communicate. Meanwhile, the team enters the church. The doors are closed. And they are about to be transported up when Jacob is able, just able to rip the doors open and see them literally transport away in a beam of light. So the asteroid plan worked. And Tilly, who's still in her uh, hospital pajamas, is leaving the bridge. And that's when May shows up again and she says, hey, you did a great job there, Stilly. And the doors close. And Tilly's like, what? Anyway, the captain is alive. Captain Pike is alive. But apparently he will have severely bruised ribs. Tilly also realized that she hasn't been called Stilly since junior high school by a friend of hers named May Ahern. So she assumes that May is on the ship. When she searches for her, she can't find her. And then she finds out that May is, uh, is well, there's no light way to put it. May Ahern is dead. She died. She did. Dun, dun, dun. We don't know what is going on there. I'm sorry I told you not to have the dun, dun, duns read. Give me no hints today. Oh, I didn't know that I was going to feel so dun 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 There was like three dun dun duns. I know. Or Boris. I don't even remember what that was called, but Boris. Boris. Ouroboros. Whatever. Okay. Yeah, just think of Bora Bora. Okay, so Michael goes to see Pike in the new ready room with chairs and lights and everything. It's very comfy and cozy. And that's right. He makes that joke in season episode one. He's like, where do people sit? Look. Yeah, where do people sit? And yeah, Michael's like, yeah, Lorca didn't really want people sitting around talking. <laughs> he just wanted to eat fortune cookies and stare out the window like a weirdo. Uh, and in that moment, Michael feels brave enough to admit that she saw a vision that looked like the same angel. And Pike says something that isn't, sorry, yes. Did she? I thought she was about to say it because she sees the vision and then she goes, oh, I just wanted to thank you for pulling That was out. in the beginning. Oh, in the end, she says, hey, I didn't tell you a thing before and I want to tell you now. Speaking of following orders, because she's thanked, she Pike thanks her for following orders and keeping general order one, even though it would have been easier to just whip out a thing and save her. You were right. That's uh, fine. I was trying to hear my notes. It's all. Don't worry about it. Uh, Pike says something I thought was very interesting here, which didn't make it into my memorable quotes, but I thought it was interesting because it shows his the way he is different from Lorca. Uh, because after she says, like, tells him about the angel, he says, well, at least this is new information, and this new information offers context. And context, dot, dot, dot. Is for kings? 
can alter our perspective. He doesn't say it's for kings because he's not a raging uh, megalomaniac yep. like <laughs> Lorca. Oh, boy. Michael says, what about Jacob? He obviously knows something about the mystery. He's living in like a like a real sense of like just a horrible life where he feels like everything around him is fake and he'll never know. And she's, and they bring up the fact that there was a helmet camera that one of the uh, soldiers had that apparently would have been on during this miraculous appearance of the, the angel and uh, the transporting of the white church to a terrorism. To, to terrarium. So, terrorism. Terrarium. <laughs> Uh, this is why we're such good friends. That's why we're good friends because we annoy <laughs> each other. We have we'll lightly annoy each other. Okay, so uh, Michael brings up the helmet camera, and she's like, she thinks it's important enough because this mission is so important to Starfleet that this supersedes General Order One. But in a show of the maturity that Michael Burnham has achieved since the beginning of the series, she says, "But that is a choice only a captain can make." Uh, which Pike takes to heart. He transports down, finds Jacob in the basement, talks to him, admits that, yes, the Federation, we fly in ships, uh, we transport. Uh, it's amazing. Our life is awesome. Anyway, here's a battery, bro, for that helmet. And Jacob's like, okay, cool. Here is the helmet. He takes the battery, and uh, Pike transports away, and Jacob uses the battery to turn the lights on the ch- in the church back on, which have not been on for many a year. And it lights up, and everyone in New Eden is like, whoa, because now things... Anyway, it shows that I called it... It's like a small revelation, a tiny revelation. And also, Jacob says, I know we will, we will meet again. He seems to believe that they, they're, they're fated to meet once more. In the final scene, Pike is uh, removing the data from the helmet camera and looks at the scenery and sees people huddling in a church and they, the sound of bombs falling and then a figure appears in the door, backlit by red, by pillars of fire, with wings. He sees a glimpse of the red angel. Dun, 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 dun. The end of season again. I too love many pages. The pages. I do love the pages. Well, they're just falling on me now. But uh, yes, that is the end of episode two of season two. Can't believe we're saying season two yes. of Star Trek. We finally got Discovery. there. Discovery. So exciting. Set phases to stats. Oh, we have some stats. Yes. Uh, we have two black alerts. We have one red alert. Red alert. Mm. And we have one set phasers to stun folks. It's time to get serious because I need you to play me Faith in the Heart, please. Of course. (laughs) The salute is too much. Science officer (laughs) Evan Connolly, you were a jerk face. You are like a second-rate Spock. You're not a great science officer. You're bad at summing up scientific situations. Michael is better at it than you, and Pike realized that right away. You are maybe could be considered good-looking. I'm not sure. Uh, and you spent your last moments talking down to Michael Burnham, who is one of the most brilliant people in Starfleet. Nonetheless, you served, and you died in the line of duty. Stupidly. And for that, you have faith of the heart, my friend. I can't. I cannot look at you when you say that. Uh, okay. Why not? 
I don't know. It just makes me laugh. I mean, you play it and then you go up so... <laughs> Long way up, short way down. Long way up, short way down. It's true for so many things That's in life. we do it. That's right. Uh, <laughs> shall we? Quotable moments, this bad boy? Quotable moments. Quotable moments. I don't know why I bother with the fucking sound effect. Yeah, you just Excuse nailed my it. Well, it's fine. Fine. This is no kids are watching this. <laughs> uh, do you have Indeed. any quotes that you would? You, I know you have at least one that you'd like uh, to mention. Um, yes, I do have one. As I uh, polish my glasses, um, no, the one that I did like was Captain Pike, and where he used about three synonyms to say the same thing. But he, yes. when we look at Star Trek Discovery, and we've looked at Lorca for the first season, and the ways that he encourages if you like or tries to motivate it's not exactly the way of a star trek captain that we're used to that's right and Agreed. uh captain pike uh says be brave be bold be courageous i'm not sure if i'm getting that yes. in the right order but it doesn't matter because they're all exactly they're all the, same. the same i like that. but it it feels strong and as we all learned in rhetoric and public speaking in college uh, a tricolon really helps to underscore statements. So you want to say things three times. It usually is not three things that mean exactly the same thing, but it's a strong device when one is orating. Uh, so yes, I also thought Pike. It, Pike that was Pike in a, in a in a wide a moment, a public moment speaking to the crew. I chose a private moment of Pike's that I really liked. Um, firstly, I liked that he said, Spock asked the most amazing questions. It seemed logical, yet somehow able to make everyone see that logic was the beginning of the picture and not the end. And, oh no, I threw it on the floor. I do this every time. Different pages, Aki. I I did, I did, but then I forgot that there was one other thing that Pike says. In that same conversation when he's talking to Michael, he says, I'm gonna try to do it from memory. He says, uh, wherever we may end up, let's try and have a little fun on the way, make some noise, ruffle a few feathers, mm. something like that. Something and I think, again, you're, it's showing how, how vastly different a great captain uh, like Pike is uh, from someone who's horrific like Lorca, who also had intimate moments of inspirational statements like context is for kings, you know, but his, his always left you with a feeling of being stained, of being wrong. You, you know? definitely feel principles are there all the time with Captain Pike. Yeah, not and not only principles, but also like a, like a good natured sort mm. of like he cares. He genuinely cares about he cares people. and and the things that he does. He's like shoots from the hip at the right times. You know what I mean? Mm. I don't know. Um, Next time on set phasers. Well, uh, I once again forgot to look up the names of the episodes, but don't you worry, I'm on it. Uh, so next time we're going to be discussing episodes three and four of, of season two of Star Trek Discovery. And those episodes have some wonderful titles. The first one, episode three, is called Point of Light. <laughs> Point of Light. And episode well four, I'm going to mispronounce this and then Google it later and pronounce it correctly on the show. It's called An Obel for... An Obel for... Okay, we had a disagreement about this word. It is the name of the uh, Imperial ship. 
Some people think it's Sharon. Some people think it's Sharon. I negotiate the middle and say Karen, but no one liked Karen either. So I don't know. C-H-A-R-O-N. You don't like Sharon. You like Sharon? I don't like Sharon. I don't like Karen. I don't like Sharon. Sharon. Maybe Sharon. All right, I think. fine. But I thought we proved in the last season that well, it was... Well, people were calling it Karen, I think. I don't know. We had, we had too many yeah, disagreements right. about this. Anyway, next time, Steph and I will disagree about how to pronounce the last word of the name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's an obol for Sharon, uh, which I think is a reference to uh, Sharon, the Greek god who carries you across the river Styx, which I mention every time because I'm such a huge nerd and I need to stop. Anyway, thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed the program, you can catch us every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live or as a podcast every Monday, wherever podcasts come from. Please, please subscribe. Please subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating or a review. We would love to hear what you think of the show. Uh, we are on Facebook and Instagram, of course, at Set Phasers Podcast. So please feel free to follow along, join in the conversation of all things Trek, and please like my memes. I'm having so much fun with them. Oh, yes. my Q1 recently was hilarious. It was cute. Yay! I like it. Mm-hmm. Good one, right. Okay. If you want to support us on our continuing mission to discover what Discovery has in store for us, we'd only be delighted. You can patronize us. We can take it by going to patreon.com slash setphasers, which reminds me, I have to shout out one of our top tier patrons. Mr. Kyle Jaster continues to support us at the top tierest of levels. I forget what he's called. He's like a Lieutenant commander. commander, I believe. Lieutenant Commander Jaster. Lieutenant Commander Jaster. We salute you. We salute thee. Uh, <laughs> you can fu- you can patronize us and also be saluted on the show by going to patreon.com slash setphasers. Yes, we should write that into our benefits. You get a salute. You get a salute. A salute. Yeah, we should salute. We should salute. We salute you, our patrons. Yes, salutary. Oh, no. Too far. Until next time, I'm Steph Manns. And I am Aki Burmese, and this has been Set Phasers, a highly illogical Star Trek podcast. (laughs) Oh, good lord. Computer, end program.